You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's Spain and Fitz. No Fitz tonight. Courtney Cronin filling in with me, Sarah Spain, on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Lots to get to tonight. We uh, we have been missing shows on and off as we get bumped by NBA playoffs. So uh, every time we get a chance to talk to you fine folks, we've got lots to say, particularly as expectations for the NBA postseason are quickly changing for some people as we get our first looks at some of these teams in playoff action. Let's get right to that. It's time for Straight Talk. Uh, ben just did scripting. Wireless. Um, we're not going to get to you yet, Ben, because I'm still not convinced that you're going to be playing anytime soon, regardless of whether you finally took contact. But let's talk about the Warriors side of things, Courtney, because a lot of our conversation on this show and, and around the horn and elsewhere around the network before the playoff series began was the idea that there were no expectations for this team, that even though early in the season they had been a favorite right up there with the Suns, there were so many injuries, there were so many inconsistencies with seeing this roster together, and while there were the remnants of previous dynastic Warriors teams, there were also some completely unproven young folks, like, for instance, Jordan Poole. Uh, now not unproven, in fact, has done something that last was done by Wilt Chamberlain across the first two games of a playoff career. Uh how have the Warriors and what you've seen from them so far perhaps changed your perspective on the West? Well, it feels like they've mixed a little bit of the old with the new, right? Like they found this new fangled death lineup. I think we need to come up yeah. with it with a name for it that's not like the original death lineup yeah. of 2014. I heard a Death Con 5, which I like. I like that. I mean, yep. it's a machination of the original one, but going small again, realizing how successful that made them in the postseason in previous years, like that's nice to see that they have the capability of doing that. But also, you mentioned Jordan Poole, and with Steph Curry being in a form where I don't know if the Warriors were entirely sure he was going to do what he did last night in Game 2 and look like the Steph of old coming off of the bench. When when he's in that role, which is not normal uh, for Steph Curry to be coming off the bench, coming off an injury going into the postseason, but also seeing what Jordan Poole has contributed to this team, it feels mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm looking at the West. I'm looking at Dallas. No, I'm looking at Denver. No, I'm looking at Utah. No, and I'm saying there's no other team in the West right now outside of the Warriors that are any threat to the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, I mean, it it has been a series of asking questions right up until the games began and then getting the answers you were looking for, whether that's Steph looking like himself again, and they've been really smart about his minutes restriction, and yet he goes out there and he has the fewest minutes in a 30-point playoff game in the shot clock era. So since the 1950s, Steph is finding new ways to do things we've never seen him do before. Of course, everyone clamoring for him to win the Sixth Man of the Year award. Um, And then on the other side, you've got – you know, all of the usual swagger, the shimmies from Steph. You've got Jordan Poole, who looks like another Splash Brother. And you've got Draymond doing what you need from Draymond, which is not only shutting down an opponent, holding Jokic to 24% shooting when he's the final defender, but also getting in their heads. Yeah. Uh, and listen, I think when Jokic got ejected, that was a foul, and it should have been called. But you got to get him to the point where he's going to be willing to do something that dumb and get taken out of the game over a call like that by continually getting in his head. And that's one of the things about this Warriors team. They're having so much fun out there, and they are – playing to the crowd in such a way that if you're feeling defeated like this Nuggets team is and like Jokic is, it's hard to climb out of that. Yeah, and I feel like their three-guard lineup that they have right now is proving to be very difficult to defend. And when you are Nikola Jokic on the other end, and you've been playing without your two other you know, mm-hmm. star teammates since October for the most part, 
this feels like it's all but over. And you can tell that the frustrations were getting to him, and certainly they did with the ejection last night. But you could even see that in game one, Sarah, where it felt like five on one, plus the referees too, if we're just going to be honest about <laughs> that, uh, for Nikola Jokic and like the uphill battle he's had. This is just kind of like the unfair factor with the Golden State Warriors that when they can get all of their guys who are healthy. I mean, this is Clay Thompson's first action in the playoffs since we saw him again that Raptors final series back in 2019. It's nice seeing, okay, that magic that the Warriors always seem to capture April, May, and going into June, it still exists. It's just in a different format. But they also are using so much of what made them successful previously to help bolster this run as they like usher in this new sort of era with the Jordan pools of the world. I mean, think about how much money they paid Andre Iguodala. Like that's the reason he's there right now is to be in the role that he's in. And I think it's certainly working. Jordan Poole has pointed to a number of those veteran guys helping get him prepped for this, his first playoff experience, and he's looked absolutely fantastic. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, filling in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Well, the Warriors convincing us and others, including Chris Canty, uh, who was on Greeny today, talking about uh, just reimagining what the West could look like after seeing a couple games with this Warrior squad. The Golden State Warriors are the team to beat, period. I mean, when you look at what they did, they had 33 assists on 43 makes, Carlin. The way that they share the basketball, having 10 guys playing north of 13 minutes, the sheer depth that they have, it's going to be hard to compete with the different machinations, the different lineups that Steve Kerr can throw at you. And so I love the Golden State Warriors to not only make it through the Western Conference, but to actually hold up the Larry O Trophy. And I tweeted this out over the weekend If you got Draymond Green knocking down threes as the shot clock is winding down, you might as well gift wrap the Larry O'Brien trophy and send it to the Bay Area because there's not going to be nobody that can beat the Golden State Warriors. Not only if Draymond is as a playmaker, but if he's a shot maker, that could be a big problem for the rest of the NBA. Okay, so listen, I don't want to cool down anyone's fire on this. We've mentioned how great Curry's been, Thompson has been pulled. Those three alone combined for 149 points on 56% from the field and 51% from deep through two games. you got Draymond doing all of his things, but are you ready to say they're the favorites and no one can beat them? You're putting them over a Suns team that start to finish has been dominant? No, I'm not. I think that they are the biggest threat to the Suns, but I'm not ready to go ahead and say that they're getting out of the West. I think that that's way too soon to tell. And, yeah, have the Suns looked, dare I say, vulnerable in moments uh, in the first uh, little bit of playoff action that we've seen? Yes and no. They still have a lot of length. And when we talk about this DEFCON 5 lineup, if that's what we're calling it now, that's just the one thing I worry about. Like The Warriors, like that, that thing can be vulnerable at times you can't just like fall back on that as a fail safe like that's what's happened to them in playoffs of the past especially against the Cavaliers during that 16-17 series it works up until a point but I feel like if they can kind of continue to evolve within that continue to evolve in what they're doing and just frustrating the heck out of teams I mean not every team that they play is going to have right. former players on them. Like I think right. that Draymond Green knows how to get under DeMarcus yeah. Cousins' skin probably better than anybody else, Sarah. Right. And it's they're, not they're always going to be like that. As great as Jokic is, 
he's a very different player from Booker. So looking at this matchup and saying it tells you everything you need to know about what would happen against the Suns, I think, is a little prisoner of the moment. Uh, but we have kind of recalibrated the West based on how the Warriors have looked. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin at Spain and Fitz. Quickly, the East for me is not as simple because there hasn't been that clear number one. And that top four or five, I, I wouldn't be shocked if any of them were to go to the to the finals. Uh, and, and I wouldn't be shocked to see some of them sort of surprisingly bounced. Uh, the Sixers matchup with the Raptors is one I wasn't concerned about for Philly, so I haven't yet truly learned what they're going to look like. I think the Nets and Celtics series still has to shake itself out. The Bucks might be the real certainty of the East in terms of I don't have big question marks about them. But again, I don't know if I can really change any perspective on the East so far. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to buy into the Philadelphia 76ers just yet, and I'm not going to, but they still worry me in a lot of different ways. Granted, they have shown themselves to look like championship contenders, but I'm not ready to change my hierarchy around in the East and let's say, like, think for a second, the Nets or the Celtics, the winner of that series, is going to, you know, get, to the, get, to, get out of the East quicker than the Milwaukee Bucks would. That's Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Coming up, we got three game twos in the NBA tonight. Who is the most likely to even up their respective series and who's going to take that all-important 2 nothing lead? It's Spain and Fitz. More on that coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Couple game twos on the slate tonight in the NBA. One of them getting underway in just about 15 minutes here. Let's get into the most likely team to even things up. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Uh, we saw the other night the Heat beat the Hawks, uh, took a 1-0 lead, 115-91 win. Duncan Robinson had 27 in that one. Uh, the Timberwolves took one away from the Grizzlies in game one of that series. Timberwolves looking pretty fire after winning those playing games to get to the playoffs. Um, they uh, they are trying to steal two from the Grizzlies on the road here. And then we saw the Pelicans fall to the Suns in the opening game of that series. Uh, it was a 110-99 victory for the Suns. 30 points for Chris Paul, 25 for C.J. McCollum in that one. Looking across these three series, Courtney, that we have heading to game two tonight, which team is the most likely to be able to tie things up and make them 1-1? I think it's Memphis, and it's not saying that the Magic's going to dry up here on this Timberwolves team. I just feel like what happened in Game 1 with Carl Anthony Towns coming alive, you know, teams have figured out ways to take him away, and I think that Memphis is going to adjust its approach with the perennial all-star here in Game 2 to be able to even out the series. I mean, we didn't see the Ja Morant that I was expecting to mm-hmm. see in the back court that you know has been so good and so full of youth and all of the things that you love about this Memphis team just did not show up in game one and I just feel like this is going to end up being a longer series than five games and I don't by any stretch think that the Timberwolves are going to sweep so I say that Memphis has the best chance of the three tonight to even it up yeah I completely agree with you this is uh now what we've seen from Anthony Edwards so far has certainly made it less necessary for Carl Anthony Towns to do what he did in that first game. Uh, they were even obviously able to survive Carl Anthony Towns' disastrous play-in game and still advance. So they are not as dependent on the big guy as they had been, knowing what we've seen so far from this incredible, outp- uh, you know, just coming out party for Anthony Edwards, 36 points um, in their the last matchup. Um but 
you know, like you said, we're going to see more John Morant. This is a guy who has been rested and ready, watching his team hold it down and keep things alive and keep things successful without him for such a long time. Um, that I think he he has he has a breakout game tonight. Um, these are two really high scoring teams. Um, I think it's the first time we've seen the top two scoring teams meet in the first round for for quite some time. Um, so a lot of it will be the focus on which team can get the other one to slow down, which team can 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 get some stops against really talented offense on the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean the the team that we saw from this Timberwolf this Timberwolves group that we've seen from the play in tournament to where we're at right now, you know. I don't. I feel like there is something very special with this group mm-hmm. and the defense that they get from Patrick Beverly, where it's not, you know, the flashiest of performances on the offensive end, but he may give you a ten-point night that actually ends up being the turning point of the game because of what he's doing on the other end of the floor. So, really looking forward to this one, and I feel like all of the celebrating that's been done and all of the discourse around that <laughs> team specifically is worth it because it's been fun since it's been twenty years since this team was any good or even in this position in the playoffs yeah I mean think about the celebration what I can't even remember how many years ago that was now when they won the final game of the regular season just to get in the play-in tournament do you remember that I mean that was a huge deal for this team that has struggled so much to find success you know speaking of that Chris Finch the head coach of the Timberwolves was on with you over the weekend on best week ever and you know talked about some of that criticism for you know jumping on tables and getting so excited when they advanced to the postseason I mean, listen, isn't this what we want from our athletes? Don't we want them to really want to win and have it mean something to them? And when it means something to a city and a franchise that hasn't won or hasn't been in the playoffs once but uh, in the last 20 years, this is a team that our community has really gotten behind. They love their personality. They love the way they play. If you followed us at all throughout the season, you would have known that inside Target Center, we've been selling out crowds now coming down the stretch. You know, at any given night, anything could be happening in our arena. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a wild place right now. Absolutely 100% appropriate to celebrate all of these things that our players accomplished this year. I completely agree. And I completely agree when people are like, what do you want from us? Isn't this supposed to be fun? Aren't we supposed to be excited when we succeed because you're going to dog the hell out of us when we don't? Uh, I'm here for it. I like the enthusiasm from the T-Wolves. I think they've been really fun to watch so far. Really fun to watch Anthony Edwards again in this sort of coming out party. And I always root for Cat. He's been through a lot the last couple years. Easy to make fun of him the other night in that play-in game. He was a disaster, but he more than made up for it in game one. So we'll see if they can even things up in game two tonight. That's an 8:30 Eastern game. T-Wolves up one nothing on Memphis. And then let's talk about the other two. I mean, I think the Heat are right, Courtney, in their complaints about being undercovered this year. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. It's one I spoke about with the Bucks as well. If you didn't have drama in the East, we just weren't going to pay as much attention to you. If you didn't have people eschewing vaccinations or requesting trades or, uh, you know, having mental health breakdowns, we just weren't talking about you. And so the Heat have a beef, and it's a fair beef, but the better they play in the postseason, the more attention that we're going to pay to them. I mean, they're a one seed for a reason. Let's not forget that. And I think it's okay to be the quiet one seed. Were they not in a similar position, not necessarily seeding-wise, but what they did in the bubble a few years Mm -hmm. ago, they were like the quiet assassins who all of a sudden they showed up and they popped everyone's bubble. They can do that here. I mean, I would not be complaining if I'm holding Trey Young and Bogdan Bogdanovich to one of 20 shooting 
from the field and 0 for 11 from three. I mean, I don't believe that those numbers are going to replicate themselves tonight, but I would be okay with that if I'm the Miami Heat, just kind of quietly like fly under the radar until you get to the second round, and then then they'll probably get their due and their attention because either way, one of the Celtics or one of the Nets are not going to be going on here, and I think that we know what's going to happen with the uh, with the 76ers and the Bucks series. So, yeah, they'll get their due next round. They can go ahead and kind of take this one a little bit quietly. I, w- I don't want to say easy because I don't think it's going to be a sweep, but it's certainly not going to go more than five. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, obviously, the, the Hawks are an up-and-coming team, and there's a lot to like about them. But um, this is a Heat series, and uh, they'll probably just try to avoid injury and get through it and get their focus on who's to come next. I think the same thing in the Pelican Sun series. I hate to say it because I love my guy CJ McCollum, and I love what the Pelicans have been able to do, especially since the trade deadline. But this Suns team... I don't even know where to begin when you're watching game one and looking at what they were able to do. Uh, it's going to take a Herculean effort to stop Chris Paul. I think he had, what, 19 points in the fourth, just took the baton from Devin Booker and said, all right, I got this one for this quarter. Um, that, that just seems overwhelming. It does, and I feel like Phoenix has been here before, and we all expected this to not be a very competitive series against the Pelicans from their route through the play-in tournament to getting here. But, you know, it's kind of crazy how I, I saw something today that the Suns were part of the most-watched NBA playoff opening weekend in, in a decade. Just, like, how yeah. many people, like, watched these playoffs this year, thinking back to last year when I felt like that opening weekend was so incredible and, you know, how high of a level the basketball, like, the you know, just level of basketball that we saw. And, you know, even though they got that bad time slot on Sunday night, a lot of people, myself included, stayed up to watch that because Mm -hmm. we're so intrigued by this team, the youth that they have from someone like Devin Booker all the way to the veterans and Chris Paul. Yeah, and the expectations are so high coming as close as they did last year. And the door is certainly, I guess the window is closing on Chris Paul. So a lot of folks are are hoping to see him get that one. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Your small business keeps you on the go. Progressive Commercial Insurance keeps your policy within reach with their easy-to-use mobile app. Learn more at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Coming up, you thought Celtics fans were against Kyrie Irving in Game 1. Wait until tomorrow night. The hate has been spread to Fenway Park even. We'll talk to someone who'll be in the building coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz tonight. Although I'm going to have a solo chat here with my buddy Nick Friedel. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. ESPN NBA reporter who's on the Nets feed and uh, somehow Nick found some time in between rephrasing questions for Kyrie until he could get an answer. Nick, uh, let's talk about Kyrie, the middle fingers, the, the, the yelling back at fans. What's been the response around the Nets team to that? And is everyone just kind of cool with how Kyrie's been behaving, ready for him to bring it on again in game two? <laughs> Sarah, I, I actually just talked to, to Kevin Durant about exactly this. And he said, look, when you're in the middle of the storm like that, you understand from his perspective, having gone through what he's gone through when he's gone back to Oklahoma City, what Kyrie is dealing with. And as Kevin said, everybody handles that stuff differently. On some days, maybe Kyrie wants to flick people off and say a bunch of stuff. On other days, maybe he doesn't respond at all and he just keeps rolling and and the crowd doesn't have that type of visceral impact on him, at least in how uh, 
uh, his actions <laughs> look. But mm. they all agree on this, and this is crucial. No matter what the Boston crowd says or doesn't say to Kyrie, they all expect him to play the same way in game two. And he was awesome offensively in that game. So uh, that is the takeaway in between uh, in these last couple of days. The Nets absolutely think that Kyrie will be on top of his game again tomorrow night. He was fined $50,000 by the league for his actions during game one. Uh, Even the folks at Fenway Park, unrelated, I don't believe Kyrie was at the stadium, uh, but they still managed to erupt into chants, saying words that can't be shared here on Disney uh, during a game. So uh, tell me, what do you expect in game two? It feels like they're probably just resting their vocal cords for another round. Yeah, and and what I would tell any Boston fan is, look, booing doesn't really help. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if there's something else that they want to try to to get Kyrie uh, off uh, his game, but that hasn't worked too well. The one thing, uh, aside from Kyrie, that the Nets are banking on, and I would bet a lot of money on uh, as far as, Kevin Durant playing a hell of a lot better than he did Mm -hmm. in game one because, Sarah, he is so, so good, and he is such a a proud player and such a student of the game and knowing how to find the right spaces on the floor to create for himself and his teammates that Kevin is totally confident that he is going to play a lot better after shooting nine for 24 in game one. So – Kyrie aside, the Nets are still feeling very good about where they're at because they know they can play a hell of a lot better. Mm -hmm. Kevin can shoot it a lot better. And even if Kyrie is knocking down 39, they can still play defense a little bit more and even up the series going back to Brooklyn this weekend. Nick Friedel here with me, Sarah Spain on Spain and Fitz. You can follow him at Nick Friedel. Let's talk Ben Simmons. Not going to play in game two tomorrow, but Steve Nash hasn't ruled him out for game three. Cleared for contact. It's a baby step, but it's a step, Nick, for people who maybe have have kind of stopped thinking about the minutia of everyday detail we get on Simmons if it's not going to amount to him playing. This feels like it's actually a little bit of news. It is, and Sarah, I had to laugh because (laughs) that says says in practice today, well, you know, Ben got a little four-on-four work in last night. We're like, oh, there was a practice last night. Okay, Uh, that's interesting. And and then he says, yeah, you know, he came through it all right. He's doing pretty good. And then there's a pause, and he goes, well, but there's not really an update. as <laughs> winning my play. So uh, I think it was a pretty big update. This is the first time after any practice that we have seen Simmons look like an active member of the team. So uh, it is a baby step, but it is a step in the right direction. And by all accounts, Simmons remains in good spirits. He's trying to get back out on the floor before the season ends. And even if he can give him 10 or 12 minutes in game four or game five, those are still 10 or 12 minutes uh, that the Nets will take because this is a team that needs help on the perimeter with its defense and could use help moving the ball up and down the floor. And for all of Simmons' flaws, and there are plenty, he spent some of the time after practice today, working with Kyle Korver on his form, on his shooting form. But for all those flaws, the Nets want him to focus on what he can do well. And the things he does do very well are the things that the Nets 
are deficient in. So from a basketball standpoint, it still feels like it could be a match, not only whatever he gives them now, but in the future. So, Nick, let's talk about what could happen in game two. That was about as close as it comes, right? Uh, a spinning last-second lay-in after, uh, you know, a, a surprising pass uh, was required in order for Boston to get the win. What needs to change in game two for the Nets to even it up? They have got to play stronger defense for longer stretches. Sarah, for as well as they played and Kyrie did offensively, there were far too many moments, and the biggest example of that would be the last 45 seconds of the game, where they just kind of had mental errors. And, and you're thinking, how can this be? Well, the difference is the Nets just have not had the continuity that they need. They have not played together enough, and usually that comes out on the defensive end. But how do you get that back over the course of the series? Well, you lean on Kevin Durant early. And as far as the game plan tomorrow, I would expect Steve Nash to feed Kevin early and often and try to get him rolling. And then you just hope that you can get uh, some more production from the Bruce Browns and even more from Andre Drummond and Seth Curry can knock down some shots from the outside because after he got hot early in game one, you didn't hear from him as much after that. So the pieces are in place for the Nets. They feel like they still have a really good chance to go and win this series, but you got to get this game tomorrow to feel really good about what's going to come over the next week because if you even it up, get a couple more practice days to see what Simmons may be able to give you at some point, this team feels like it just needs to find some momentum. And to Boston's credit, when times got rough, they never panicked in that game. and They made all the plays late that they needed to, and that's what a really good team does in the postseason. Spain and Fitz, Nick Friedel, joining me ahead of tomorrow night's Nets-Celtics game two. You know, in the West, the way the Warriors have played has changed my perspective on, you know, what kind of challenges the Suns are going to have at the top there. In the East, there hasn't been a clear top team. A lot of shuffling all season long, and you could ask five different people and they'll give you different answers on the who the true number one is. What have you seen so far from the teams in the East in the first couple games? Uh, has any of it changed your perspective on who, who should be the front runner? It hasn't, and here's why, Sarah. In my mind, I would still bank on Milwaukee being able to hit a different level than any one of those other teams. And whether that comes to be or not, well, we'll see over the course of time here. But with Giannis, I just think he is so dominant. And that team has been building for this moment. And no, they didn't look good against the Bulls in game one, but they still won. And they're still trying to find a rhythm of their own. But every one of those teams in the East has some flaws. There are reasons why you wouldn't pick mm -hmm. some of those teams. I know everybody's getting all hot and bothered for Philly again after a solid first couple games in that series against the Raptors. But Milwaukee, to me, after what they did and what they proved to themselves during last year's postseason, makes them a little bit of a favorite in a crowded and talented East. So nothing I've seen has changed that. And I still think that when push comes to shove, Giannis will be there and be ready to dominate whoever he has to to deliver Milwaukee back into the finals this year. 
Yeah, Nick, regarding those bucks, I really made a grave error making them my side piece a couple years ago. Now that the bulls are good again, I got my main squeeze taken on my side piece. And I, I'm, I'm torn. Uh, you know how that is, Nick. You know how yeah, that I mean, is. Well, let's just play the Brian McKnight song from the ESPYs a few years back, you know? That's right. That's side right. Piece and side piece. Uh, Nick, enjoy the game tomorrow. More importantly, enjoy the post-game antics, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> you got it, SS. Uh, would it be a Nikki interview without the laugh? Nailed it at the end. Uh, NBA playoffs are on ESPN Radio. Tune in tomorrow night as the Celtics host the Nets, presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN Radio stations. Coming up on Spain and Fitz, it's not all about the NBA playoffs. There's a lot of NFL storylines to get to. We'll take you through them quickly next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin hanging in for Fitz tonight. And since we do have the Bears beat reporter on our hands here, we got to do some NFL stories, including checking in on how that new beat has gone. So to get to all of it as quickly as possible, it's got to be quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. So let's start by being homers with our two Chicagoans here. I know it's early, not a lot of big news to report, Courtney, but just tell us how the Bears beat has been. You were on the Vikings beat for such a long time. Mm -hmm. You take over this job. Uh, What's it been like? What's been new and cool and different? It's been cool so far. Uh, Today we were out there for better, excuse me, voluntary, about to call it veteran minicamp, which is mandatory. (laughs) This was voluntary, but of course we're all looking to see who's there and who's not there. I can report that. About everybody on offense except Nick Foles was uh, present today. There were a couple defensive subtractions. No Eddie Jackson out there. Hmm. No Jalen Johnson. Uh, Roquan Smith was there, and he's looking for a new contract. So either way, we're at a point now, Sarah, with the Chicago Bears team that you're not going to know what Matt Eberflus is building at the beginning of voluntary minicamp. This is a very long process, and I am sorry to tell you as a Bears fan, it's probably a multi-year process, but they're getting something going, and I thought it was good to hear from Justin Fields today about the changes he's made to his mechanics and some of the things he's trying to clean up this offseason. We do know about Eberflus that he will beat the hits philosophy into your head until <laughs> you remember. Hustle, intensity, taking the ball away, taking care of the ball, playing smart and situationally. Uh, we will get all the pillars, and we will hear about them all the time. Uh, I'm super excited that you're on that beat, and we'll have you to chime in and let us know how things are going over there. Uh, let's get to the next story. Quickies. Now, how things are going over there for any Ben McAdoo team is usually comically, is usually <laughs> the word I would use. And he's done it again. Uh, ben McAdoo, not a first-time head coach, someone who by now should sort of know the ropes when it comes to speaking to the media, what you need to say, what you don't need to say, especially on day one. Well, here's how things are going for Ben McAdoo as the OC of the Panthers. And you look at Sam as your starting quarterback? Sam is our starting quarterback, yes. One minute, 37 seconds later. You know, one of the things I've been working on is being better talking to you people, so... You know, announcing the starting quarterback here, I just put my foot in the mouth. So that wasn't something I should have said. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I guess I will give him credit for self-awareness that a minute and 37 seconds later, he was like, you know what? My bad. You know what I'm working on? Doing the opposite of what I just did. So I'm going to call myself out and instantly regret what I said. Uh, But this does leave us beyond the opportunity to make fun of Ben McAdoo, who now has a middle part, by the way. 
Uh, he's changing up the hairdo. Uh, we also get to talk about what that means for their quarterback situation, which could mean Baker Mayfield, could mean mm-hmm. in the draft. Certainly sounds like Sam Darnold is not the final answer. Yeah, and I think that back when Scott Fitterer, their GM, talked to reporters right after free agency, he said that Sam Darnold's the guy. So it's not like Ben McAdoo like went and said anything that like nobody already kn- didn't know because there's one other quarterback on the roster, and it's P.J. Walker. So, yeah, right, right now, Sam the guy right now. Sam Darnold <laughs> is the guy right now. I mean, he didn't specify the right now part. He said he is a starting quarterback. But, you know, all the reporting that's come out about Baker Mayfield the last couple days, of course he's the best option for the Carolina Panthers. I mean, I think cooler heads have prevailed ever since the mutual disinterest stuff that came out after Cleveland uh, went ahead and got Deshaun Watson. I feel like that's probably bound to happen because Matt Rule's got to do something to save his job, and I don't think he can rely on drafting a rookie quarterback to do that. Agreed. It did remind me of the uh, the time during which uh, Tom Brady was uh, g- staying away from football for Lent when the uh, Buck staff had to keep saying, Blaine Gabbard is the guy right now. And it was like, yeah, right, right now is uh, the important language there. All right, next story. Quickies. Colin Kaepernick uh, was on a podcast with Brandon Marshall and Pac-Man Jones and a couple others and said that he would be willing to be a backup. Here's what it sounded like. If an opportunity presented itself today and they said, we want to bring you in as the backup, would you take that? Yeah. You'll take that. If an opportunity- I, I know I have to find my way back in. Okay. So, yeah, if I have to come in as a backup, that's fine. But that's not where I'm, that's not where I'm staying. And when I prove that I'm a starter, I want to be able to step on the field as such. I just need that opportunity to walk through the door. By the way, Chad Johnson was the third, and that is quite a trio. Brandon Marshall, Chad Johnson, and Pac-Man Jones. Uh, We don't have time to get into that. We will get into what Cap said. Courtney, you know, we heard back in 2019 his agent telling teams he was willing to do this, but this is really the first time he has spoken up and said out loud, this is what I want. Now, he did couch it by immediately saying, yeah, I'd be a backup until I prove that I belong as a starter, let me compete. I don't know if that helps. He, He allows these equivocations I think to be twisted by teams who are disingenuous in their interest anyway but then they can say to themselves oh he'll be a distraction if he if it's very clear he would only be a starter and that's I think some of the of what hurt him in the past he was very clearly blackballed he very clearly should have got got an opportunity but now it's been so long and there are so many ways to try to spin his silence in the past and his comments now that I just think it's probably not going to happen he said this a similar thing during Michigan's spring game where mm-hmm. he was throwing routes on air and, you know, talked to reporters afterwards saying he wouldn't mind coming in, you know, as a backup and fighting for his role, just wants to be part of an NFL franchise and then expanding upon it in the po- in the I Am Athlete podcast where I don't mind coming in as a backup, but I don't plan to stay as a backup right. long. Like – and this could go a whole number of different ways. The USFL just started this past weekend, right? Like there's some the belief of some that, okay, maybe he should be doing that for the time being to actually show these teams. So it's not just the matter of like, believe my words, I can play, even though it's been five seasons since right. you've seen me. Like, you know, I, I he also talked about being – not a distraction. I thought that was actually the more like poignant answer there right. where he's talking about, you know, everything on the back of your guys' helmets and in the end zones, in the NFL, in stadiums, that stuff that he was the one like pushing for. And apparently he's the distraction. It doesn't really add up. 
Yeah, I think he was in the right when he took a stand. I think he's in the right now in terms of saying the NFL has adopted so much of the language and messaging that he was on the forefront of trying to get people to recognize and pay attention to. Unfortunately, I just think he was done wrong and too much time has passed. And I don't think that he necessarily is in a position now that a team is going to give him a shot. All right, next story. Quickies. 49er star Debo Samuel is one of three wide receivers looking for a deal. A.J. Brown of the Titans, Terry McLaurin, Scary Terry of the Commanders, um, all looking for new contracts, all sort of scrubbing social media, not planning to participate during uh, off-season programs. This is according to sources talking to Adam Schefter. Uh, Courtney, not a lot to say about this. For me, this is not diva behavior. This is not disgruntled uh, employee behavior. This is them playing the game that unfortunately has sort of been set up in recent years, which is if you really want what you want, you almost have to hold out. You almost have to be dramatic. That's what has been rewarded. And as much as I love the guys who can show up and still get what they want, that's not always the case. So I got no problem with guys doing this. I think it's easily forgotten once the deal is done. Yeah, and this is the reason that voluntary and you can't see me but I'm using air quotes when we talk <laughs> about these off-season workouts they're voluntary in name only because everyone is looking around to see who's not there especially the players who are coming up on contract extensions and for Debo Samuel Terry McLaurin and AJ Brown they're all in that same boat where they're not doing the on-field work right now and honestly this is the way that you have to play the game if you want mm -hmm. that contract extension, especially when you look at what the the free agent market and even really the trade market provided wide receivers just over six weeks ago. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin didn't have time to get to the commander's topic. They have sent a letter to Congress strongly disputing financial misconduct claims. If you want to hear more about that, I filled in for Pablo Torre today on ESPN Daily. Talk to John Keim all about his reporting on the commanders and the latest in that. So go check that out. Spain and Fitz is brought to you by My Computer Career, training for a better life. Coming up, Golden State Warriors have been firing on all cylinders early in the postseason. Looks like they may have even added another splash bro. Brother. Should the Western Conference be on notice? Our next guest is going to tell us. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I'm bleeping back was what you could very easily see Steph Curry saying as he made his way down the court midway through their game against the Nuggets. 126-106 yesterday. They take a 2-0 lead in their first-round playoff series, and Steph Curry is absolutely back despite a minutes restriction and Jordan Poole has arrived. Let's talk about the Warriors and what we've seen from them early in this postseason where we had a lot of questions and seem to be getting a lot of answers very quickly. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80, ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Um, this is absolutely a putting the Western Conference on notice start to the postseason. And we shouldn't be that surprised, Courtney, because obviously this team was really clicking when everyone was healthy midway through the season. They were keeping pace with the Suns. But then, you know, the injuries, the, the difficulty getting everyone out there, the questions about the young players, could this be a replication of the dynastic teams or would they not quite have that same flavor? And here we are. They're looking pretty good. Yeah, and I think that this brings up the point that we knew about the Warriors when they were on the midst of the, in the midst of that five-game win streak to end the regular season, and they did it without Stephen Curry after he injured his knee on March 16th, and then they start rolling once they get into the postseason. Like they're a team that truly can turn it on and have a different gear where the regular season doesn't matter nearly as much to their overall body of work and their success 
as it does come middle of April all the way through May and June. Like, this is who they've been. And the fact is they've got the depth of what of what their group has been previously, and they might have, you know, one of the better, like, three-guard trios here with Jordan Poole, with Draymond Green, with, um, you know, Steph Curry. I mean, kind of depending upon what role you're having them all play, Clay Thompson in that mix too. This is what you expect from this Warriors team. And I know that sometimes we look at them and say, well, let's not compare them to the teams of old. Those are different. Those are structured differently. They, they look different. You know, this group is pretty, pretty dangerous. And there's a reason that Jordan Poole, I know that he feels that some people around him, I guess he doesn't, but some people around him feel slighted that he didn't get the most improved player award this year. You it was know, kind of respect. Honestly, it was people who thought it. he played great last year, too, and just felt like it wasn't that big of a leap. You know who would know that? Kendra Andrews, ESPN NBA reporter who covers the team. Kendra, let's start there. Is there any reason to suspect that Jordan Poole's outpouring has become uh, a part of, uh, you know, getting back at people for that slight? Because it sure sounds like, from what the announcers were saying the other night, the lack of the most improved player was actually respect from people who saw him play last year and said, you know, he already had this skill set. He just improved upon it a little bit. Well, I think that's a really hard argument to make when John Morant is uh, one of the candidates, right? One of the finalists (laughs) uh, for most improved player. He was the second overall pick, rookie of the year. So I think that that argument, in my opinion, loses loses some punch. As for, you know, a response, I I don't think that this is a response from Jordan saying, uh, you know, I'll say this. I think Jordan, his entire NBA career, has, has played his game, you know, trying to force people who doubted him to eat their own words. You know, the, his, his first and second year in the league, there were people saying, you don't belong in the NBA. Do you have a future in the NBA? And he really wanted to prove to them, you know, I, I do. So this uptick in his play didn't start when he did not become a finalist for most improved player you know maybe now it is adding some fuel to the fire but Jordan has had his eyes set on making an impact in the playoffs from the day that he was drafted probably before when he was still at Michigan and I think now what we're seeing is just the accumulation of all of the work he's put in over the last three years finally paying off and he's put in a really good position to show his chops. Somebody else who is historically for the Warriors had a major impact in the postseason is Andre Iguodala. And I know that the Warriors Mm -hmm. weren't able to go to him, Kendra, in game two because he had neck spasms. How concerned are they? Like, I know that they're able to use nine now instead of 10. Most teams aren't that deep. Mm -hmm. But how concerned do you think they are with Iggy's injury right now and what that could mean going forward? I don't know if there's a concern level super high because they don't quite know what they're working with. The Warriors... You know, Andre didn't play that much during the regular season. Now, part of that reason is because they really did want to save him for the playoffs. But they know that they can be successful without him. We saw that in Game 2. We saw that a bit in the regular season. Now, if the next spasms uh, persist as you get past this first round into the second, third, and, you know, they have their eyes set on the finals, as you get deeper into the playoffs, if he is still unavailable, then the concern level will start to rise because they really like having him as a calming, uh, stable presence, veteran presence out there on the floor. I think he's supposed to get some acupuncture later this week. Um, so I think as, as the week goes on and as this series Denver continues, then, then they'll be able to kind of measure their own concern level. 
Kendra Andrews, ESPN NBA reporter who covers the Warriors, is with us here on Spain and Fitz. Courtney Cronin, Sarah Spain. Uh, Courtney, you mentioned nine or ten. They played 13 different guys game two, 14 <laughs> in game one. It's just been unbelievable the depth that Steve Kerr has been able to use, including sixth man of the year, Steph Curry. 34 <laughs> points in, in you know, the, the smallest number of minutes for a 30-point since 1954, mm-hmm. uh, he still acknowledged there is a little discomfort in his foot. As well as he's played, do we need to still be careful about how that might manifest in, in the rest of the series and going after that? I think it's definitely something to monitor, and it's one of the reasons why he is still coming off the bench and is still under that 23-ish minute restriction is because the Warriors do not want this to become an issue down the stretch, right? So if you can get him, clearly he's being extremely effective and impactful in that limited minute uh, restriction. So if you can keep getting that, they don't want to rush anything, especially with, you know, we talked about Jordan Poole. If Jordan Poole is continuing to play as well as he is, there is no reason for them to switch up what they are doing and rush to another option when the one that they have right now is working just fine with them. Now, of course, even Draymond Green said this after game two, eventually they do need Stephen Curry back in this in the starting lineup. But again, as we go through this Denver this Denver series, the the rotation pattern and the minute pattern that they've had for Steph bringing him in midway through each quarter, setting it up so that they can have that whatever you want to call it, death lineup 3.0 uh, <laughs> to close the half and then to close the game. They they seem really happy with that. Steph is is not you know in his feelings about coming off the bench. He's he's supportive of it. His teammates are supportive of it. His coaches are supportive of it. But as for that lingering foot discomfort, as Steph called it, it's something to monitor. And I think that as the sign of it being over is when he, his minutes are increased and he is back in that starting lineup. Kendra, we saw the Nuggets lose their composure in game two, uh-huh. and it felt like this was sort of coming to a head. And I think they can thank Draymond Green for hyping up the crowd, for getting into Marcus Cousins' head, for same thing with Nikola Jokic. And – I know that his role might be taking somewhat of a backseat just from a storyline perspective right now because we're all in on Jordan Poole and we're all in on his success. You know, how important do you feel like he is within the shuffle of this team, Draymond Green that is? Because I know sometimes he's not really getting the accolades that he did previous years when he was playing this exact same role for the Warriors. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is so, so important to this this team to this series look at the defense that he's been playing on Nikola Jokic the reigning MVP Steve Kerr after the game yesterday said he looked at the box score at halftime and he saw that Draymond had like one point and three rebounds or vice versa something but he did not care because he knew how much Draymond was impacting the game I don't have the stat right in front of me but he's holding Nikola Jokic to an Insane. 24% when he's the final defender. 24% from the floor. That's what Draymond Green is doing. And it's crazy because Draymond did not play in any of the four regular season matchups against the Nuggets. And I asked Michael Malone about this before the series started. And he said, honestly, that's probably one of the reasons why the Nuggets went 3-1 and on the Warriors during the regular season. It's because Draymond Green wasn't out there to just shut down the Koleokic. And as you mentioned, getting the heads of these other players. Trey said last night, when you start to see them fluster, get flustered, you just push a little harder. You lean into it a little bit harder. He, you know, is the heart and soul of this team, but his defense on Jokic has just been superb. And you're right. It has gotten lost in the storylines and in the shuffle as their offense 
uh, has taken center stage. Well, Kendra, it's been a whole lot of fun to watch and certainly is making some of us change our perspective on how the West might play out. We really appreciate the time. Yeah. You have no problem. Have a good one. You could follow her at Kendra underscore Andrews for more content on the Warriors at Spain and Fitz. Courtney Cronin in for Fitz today. We're going to talk about Marshawn Lynch and Zambonis next. Do I need to say more? It's coming up. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. There's a video on the internet of Marshawn Lynch doing donuts in a Zamboni. And if you haven't seen it, I don't know what you're doing with your life. I know there's a lot of things on the internet. There's like hours of content about the Revolve Festival that we all need to get to. But I still encourage you to find the Marshawn Lynch Zamboni video. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80, ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Why are we watching videos of Marshawn Lynch and why is he on a Zamboni? Well, he and Grammy winner Macklemore are two new owners in the Seattle Kraken. The NHL signed off on the deal earlier this month. Lynch is going to be part of the uh, NHL Hockey is for Everyone campaign. And the CEO of the Kraken has said that uh, Marshawn wants to sort of shadow him and see the ins and outs of what it is to be a hockey CEO. Uh, first of all, Courtney, love this. Uh, the Kraken just seemed fun. And anytime you have these new expansion teams, they always seem to kind of start off from a fresher and newer place. It makes me think of Angel City in the NWSL and their celebrity ownership. They just kind of start, you know, progressive and evolved. Um, and I think it'd be really fun to have Marshawn and McLemore hanging out around the building. First off, the uniforms alone for this team are unbelievable. Like, if I could buy one and just wear it around, like, that's what I would do. And you I can. Probably should I'm do currently that. not wearing any Blackhawks gear for quite a while based that's on okay. recent developments. So perhaps we should adopt the Kraken for a while. They can be our team, and I'm absolutely yes. fine with that. The Side logo, piece. The logo Side is piece. amazing. Yes. The teal <laughs> and the color is amazing. I love it all. But I also think that what Marshawn Lynch said about his – ownership and being a minority owner of a sport that you know typically has not had a lot of african-american players in it i mean he is helping or at least what he helps you know to bridge the gap here and to make hockey more accessible but also his own personal journey he retired at 30 years old and by his mid-30s he's a minority owner in a professional sports franchise like that's the way to do it pretty awesome i love the fact too that macklemore who's from the i believe from the seattle area i knew he was a huge mariners fan because half of his music is about that um it's cool that he got involved in this too like it's neat seeing celebrities from one city join forces not just be the typical boring billionaires who own teams agreed agreed and and speaking from the perspective of a really cool person from a city who's an owner uh i think that just more of us should be involved actually let's let's uh ask folks at spain and fitz at sarah spain at courtney r cronin if you could have a famous celeb from your hometown buy into your favorite team who would you want uh let us know on on twitter it's spain and fitz uh let's get back to the nba Uh, We've got a couple games going on tonight, uh, including right now the Hawks and the Heat that are going at it. This is a tight one right now. It's about six or so minutes to play in the second with the Heat up 41-39. We've got Minnesota, Memphis, and New Orleans, Phoenix coming up later tonight. But I want to talk about a couple teams that have been disappointing. And the Jazz are one. We talked about them earlier. We talked about... I'm sorry, the Nuggets are one, and we talked about them earlier. We talked about Jokic having to do so much on his own. No Jamal Murray, no Michael Porter Jr., so you understand. But still, I think he would be only, if he wins the MVP again, I think the fifth MVP 
of 55 to get bounced in the first round, or maybe it's the sixth of 55 or fifth of 66. It's some absurd number. There are very few MVPs, Courtney, that have been bounced in the first round. And Michael Malone, after the game, the head coach of the Nuggets, just sounded like a guy who knows that this could go off the rails real quick. Well, we got to stick together. Uh, most importantly, we got to stick together. Um, you know, we, we, we can't splinter in adverse times. Uh, that, that's our challenge when things get tough, uh, finding a way to stay the course. Um, obviously, uh, you know, you're down six at halftime, and then the third quarter, there's just an avalanche. We gave up 44 points in a quarter. They shot 66 from the field. They made seven threes. They got to the foul line 12 times, all in the third quarter. The thing that jumps out to me after two games is our inability to sustain playing at a high level against this team. So I just want to make sure as we get on this plane tonight to go home, uh, that we get on that plane together, knowing that we have a chance to get our first win at home uh, in a few days yeah the thing that stands out to me isn't just the inconsistency but they gave up 17 made uncontested threes in a decade and they could not finish at the rim i'm gonna give a little bit of credit to the defense but more so a bunch of guys driving and not being able to finish from two feet away it was just an endless stream of mitchell and others going into the paint and not being able to finish i mean they imploded that's exactly what happened, and you saw the frustrations of this team starting to splinter come out on the sideline. Like, they're snapping at each other. Like, you've got the reigning MVP ejected in the fourth quarter. Like, this just is not a good look for two games into a series. Like, I could understand this, honestly, if this was much later in the series, either game six or game seven. But the way that they look right now just makes me think, okay, this team is mentally broken and they are not going to be able to recover. I mean, the thing with the injuries for Michael Porter Jr., for Jamal Murray, you know, Nikola Jokic has had to do so much on his own this season. And I think in spite of not having either of those two, like you can truly understand how remarkable it is that he's going to get the MVP award this year, assuming it's not going to Joel Embiid because it's not. Right. Um, yeah. It just—it's really impressive, but it also kind of makes me sad in the same yeah. in the same sense because it's like, man, the mental fortitude of this team and just watching everything come apart at the seams right now is pretty embarrassing. You know what's also embarrassing? I just realized that I was using the statistics from the Jazz when talking about the Nuggets. Uh, so uh, I will admit that I was comparing the—I was—I was cross-referencing. Too. So let's move on to the Jazz since I so clearly want to talk about them. The Nuggets are down. Jokic was bad. We saw the incredible outpouring from the Warriors. But those three-point statistics and the layups that were missed, what I was talking about, uh, was my brain on drugs, apparently, talking about the Jazz. And this is a team that makes me sad, too, because I think Donovan Mitchell is a lot of fun. He has some statistics through the beginning of his career as a playoff player that are unbelievable. And they just can't ever put it together. You, you, you watch the way that they were completely taken advantage of in perimeter defense. And then, again, to your point of, of the way the Nuggets fell apart, it looked like the Jazz as well. Where, like They had every opportunity to stay in the game down the stretch. And the Mavs, even without Luka, were able to put them away. Things that you don't expect, like Maxi Kieber, who's killing you from the outside. Yeah, and I'm, I am glad that this series is tied. Because of all series from like the games that were, you know, last night, you've got Toronto now up or Toronto down 0-2. You've got Denver down 0-2. I'd like to see Dallas do something here, 
in spite of not having Luka Doncic at this point and wondering when he's going to come back because they always disappoint us in our first-round exit. But yeah. I kind of feel for Utah, too. I mean, that was a tough, close loss for them on Monday night. It's a matchup of two teams that disappoint us. A matchup of, You know, the Jazz will probably get blown up if it doesn't work out. Um, and, I, again, though, I don't know if Kleber, Kleber is going to make that many shots. This has not been uh, – this, this was, that was a revelation for a guy who had really struggled. Um, but, yeah, man, I mean, if Luka comes back, that changes everything. And, and I don't know, maybe they don't need him as much as I thought if Jalen Brunson's going to keep doing what he's been doing. Pretty incredible. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle motorcycle, RV, and boat insurance. Visit Progressive.com. Coming up, the term collective is the new buzzword in college football. But what does it mean? Our next guest is going to tell us as he looks at a brand new market blown up. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It is a good time to be a solid college athlete, especially in football. Million dollar deals over four years for wide receiver. A million over three for a top 10 D lineman. Even a three-star defensive lineman getting $500,000 over four in NIL deals. The market that is exploding. Let's get some more insight on it. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin. Courtney stepped away for this interview. Stuart Mandel going to join me, editor-in-chief for college football at The Athletic. You can follow him at SL Mandel, where you can also find his most recent story about the exploding NIL market. Stuart, let's just start with a, a term we're hearing a lot that some might not know yet. What is a collective when it comes to NIL deals for college athletes? Well, Sarah, collectives are these third-party groups that we've seen sprout up at most of the major football schools, and they're a, a group that basically pools donations from mostly from the big money boosters, but all, many of them, you know, fans can just go on a website and donate money as well. And then that collective takes that money and uh, decides which players and in particular which recruits uh, they, they covet the most and which ones should get the most money. It is, in theory, a deal for them to do NIL appearances and whatnot. In reality, it is exactly what you think it is pay for play yeah i mean this feels like the thing that was expressly prohibited from the beginning by everybody including those in favor of nil oh of course we still will not have the ability for donors to get involved in recruiting or just flat out pay players how are they getting around this being exactly that yes yeah, a good question uh, i've had the ability to see a few of these contracts and what's amazing is there truly isn't anything in writing that stipulates that the player goes to a certain school or stays at a certain school. There is a, you know, always a clause that specifically says this is not an inducement to attend a certain school. So we know those discussions are being had. They're just not dumb enough to put it in writing. Um, what will be interesting in the next couple of years is how do you enforce that? Um, will we see cases where a player signs with certain schools or signs a contract with a certain schools collective, then decides, before signing, they actually want to go somewhere else. And how does that collective get out of paying them that money? Um, it could work the other way, too. Um, you pay collective pays a million dollars for a receiver who gets there, and it turns out he's not very good. Are they going to figure out a way to get out of their obligation to pay him uh, as well? It's all unanswered because this is all – I can't emphasize enough how quickly and overnight this is, these collectives have sprouted up. Stuart Mandel of The Athletic is with me. You can follow him at SL Mandel. Um, you know, it reminds me almost of that boon where every single advertisement during every sporting event was for DraftKings 
or one of the other daily uh, gambling sites. And eventually there were rules and then they went away for a while and now they're back. This does feel like everyone's trying to get in what they can while they can before there's more concrete nature to the rules. Because to your point, whether it's transfer portal, whether it's people not playing up to, uh, you know, the, their expectation is something like like uh, acting out or getting criminal charges, right? Things that we know are usually in contracts otherwise for paid athletes at the professional level, or even maybe with their schools, probably wouldn't be addressed by this stuff. There actually is a clause, an integrity clause in the contracts that I've seen where you would violate okay. the contract if you did something that, you know, was unbecoming. Um, but in terms of regulation, you know, that's these, the ones that are being very aggressive about it. And I want to be clear that not all of these collectives, we use that word as a catch-all, not all of them are, are as, you know, some of them are more brazen and aggressive about using it as a means to pay recruits than others, are taking a gamble that the NCAA is just so powerless at this point, especially in the face of a Supreme a 9 nothing Supreme Court decision last year against them, that they just can't do anything about this, that they're not going to try to enforce it, um, you know, try, try to prove us otherwise. Then there's people who think that these they're going to get in trouble and they're going to get these players eligibility in trouble because at some point the NCA will step in and do something about it. it remains to be seen, but it, I, it, that Supreme court decision last summer really stripped the NCA of kind of what it's last remaining, I guess, punch uh, in terms of enforcing its amateurism rules. I don't think they want to be seen in any way as trying to cap players ability to make money now. Uh, Cause that would probably lead to the next antitrust lawsuit. Yeah, and what's fascinating is some of the places that actually started to enact some rules around NIL have now pulled back on them because they fear that they won't be able to compete if everyone else is kind of operating in a wild, wild west sort of way. So some states already even sort of backing off that. Stuart Mandel of The Athletic is with us. He's got a new story out about the boon in NIL payments. Uh, one of the fascinating things is to see reactions to this, particularly from the very, very wealthy coaches of college football. <laughs> Nick Saban said seven-figure NIL deals are unsustainable. Lincoln Riley thinks there will be a market correction. Lane Kiffin, schools always find the money. So what are some of the reactions uh, that you're getting from coaches across the board from the richest and maybe to the ones that are thinking, hey, this might even things out? Well, you know, reasonable people can disagree about whether it's a smart investment right. to spend, right. you know, seven figures on a kid who's a high school junior and hasn't proven anything yet. Um but that's different to me than the ethical component of it. And, you know, you do, like you said, you have these coaches who are sounding off about how wrong this is, um, while at the same time making way more money than that themselves. I mean, your tip, even your, you know, average Power 5 head coach makes 4 or $5 million a year now. Um, I noticed in the replies to the story, there wasn't a lot of sympathy for the coaches <laughs> in this situation. Now, I think it's the way it is playing out is very messy. Uh, this, you know, the schools and the NCA um, continuing up until the bitter end to resist paying the athletes themselves um, in doing so has, has turned over a lot of power in this situation to these third parties. And some of them are organized by, from what I can tell, some of them, you know, the, the one that's associated with Tennessee, those guys are former agents. They know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, they're very savvy. Others, it was just some guy in the community was the one who, raised his hand and started it. And this is ridiculous. Like this, this is not who should be deciding who gets or doesn't get, you know, which seven figure deal. So I understand the grumbling from coaches about the way it's playing out. 
certainly it's happened very quickly, but I think there's less sympathy when it's just flat out um, complaining about players making money, period. Yeah, there's there's sympathy for, okay, we tried to bring this above board, and of course it's immediately going back below the table. Uh, there's understanding that you'd want some consistency across it, but uh, one of the quotes I saw in another story about this from Pat Kilkenny, an influential alumna from uh, Oregon and a former AD, said, it's too bad the NCAA didn't control the narrative, the smarmy nature of what's going on. These kids are in power. It's taking away the charm of the business, uh, which LOL, quite literally the charm of the business was when we were able to manipulate and use their labor for free but now that they have power it's downright smarmy um are those kind of people those folks who are more brazen in criticizing this are they finding the blowback enough that they're starting to quiet down about it and and pretend to to acquiesce first of all i hadn't heard that quote from pat kilkenny and it's um (laughs) It's, it's striking to me because he is one of the boosters involved in Oregon's collective. Mm, um, so, I mean, mm. that seems, that seems mm. to be talking out of both sides of your mouth. But, right. um, you know, I, I think uh, at the end of the day, at this point, I, you know, you, we saw last summer, NIL came, went into effect July 1st. And at that time, I saw a lot of resistance still in the public toward, toward the whole concept of NIL. Uh, I think as time went on, people it became pretty normal pretty quickly for to see um, a college athlete doing a social media pizza place. I think everybody's gotten over that. It's the recruiting element. Uh, people feeling like uh, their schools. Uh, I mean, if you're a Tennessee fan, if you're a Texas A&M fan, you're loving NIL collectives because theirs happen to be two of the more well-funded and, and they're having an impact. If you're one of the schools that didn't. Uh, get into the game quickly enough or still hasn't gotten into the game, you're outraged because you're losing recruits to other schools who are paying their athletes NIL money. So I get it. I mean, whenever there's recruiting involved, you know, there's, there's people feeling like this, this is unfair. This isn't a level playing field. It's going to benefit the rich schools, et cetera. But also let's be realistic. It's always been that way. There've always been schools that were doing some of this stuff under the table and, you know, you're not going to see a lot of recruits, even if NIL weren't a thing, you wouldn't see a lot of recruits purposely pick to go to, let's say, Kansas over Alabama. Uh, those, you know, Alabama is not going to be hurt in recruiting by the advent of NIL collectives. If anything, it might open the door for a Tennessee or a Texas A&M yeah. that hasn't been as successful recently, but still has that fan fervor and, and frankly, desperation uh, to go out and get a great recruiting class. It feels like a lot of the disingenuous arguments that were anti-NEL that were mostly done uh, to serve a, an individual's personal causes, whether that's, oh, it's going to make the big ones bigger or this is going to be bad for female athletes, has actually been disproved thus far. It's very early, and there's a lot of adaptation yet to come in this in this particular uh, market. But uh, so far, it, it has not resulted in many of the worst-case scenarios people have imagined, of course. Yet to be seen what it develops into, and you're continuing to cover that to keep us abreast of it. Thanks so much for the insight, Stuart. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, sir. Again, you can follow him at S.L. Mandel, editor-in-chief for college football at The Athletic. It's Spain and Fitz. Don't forget to tune into the ESPN Daily Podcast, bringing you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Obviously, especially today, because yours truly filled in for Pablo. Talk to John Com about the Washington Commanders. Check it out.
Coming up, we got a tight game between the Heat and the Hawks at halftime. T-Wolves Grizzlies getting underway. Also, we've got your dream celeb team matchups. It's coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Hawks keeping it tight in game two. Heat Hawks at halftime. A two-point lead for Miami. Trey Young, 18 points, three boards, three assists. Jimmy Butler, 21 for the Heat in the first half. It's Spain and Fitz. Courtney Cronin hanging out. With me tonight, filling in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. We'll get to a couple of the games tonight, including the one that's currently underway. But we did ask you about Macklemore and Marshawn Lynch becoming part owners of the Seattle Kraken, who Courtney and I both have decided will be our hockey side pieces, uh, if if for the Fitz, if for nothing else. Uh, those jerseys are fire. Uh, but we asked you if you could have a local celebrity buy in as an owner of one of your favorite teams. Who would you want? We got some good ones. Suburbs Joe said Don Staley and the Sixers. I would love to see that. Uh, Kanike Riley said Zendaya buying into the Sharks. I have no idea. Do we know if Zendaya is a Sharks fan? Because I like that collab. I mean, too. she's from the Bay Area, so I guess that yeah. that's the tie there. But I would love to see that. Zendaya could pull off wearing like a jersey as a dress with like a knee high boot. First of all, Zendaya could pull off anything, quite Mm -hmm. literally. But like I'm already putting together that game side outfit. Uh, Bill Murray and the Cubs, not technically from Chicago, but basically an adopted son of our hometown. Uh, And that would be fun. Uh, (laughs) He's a moody guy. You'd never quite know what uh, what he wanted to bring into the ownership meeting day, day by day. But it would be a lot of fun. The press conferences would be good. That's for sure. Uh Mr. Bobby Miles said Michael Scott buying into the Scranton Wilkes Bar Rail Riders. <laughs> Apparently he really lives in Scranton and that is a real thing. The Scranton Wilkes Bar Rail Riders. Uh, Michael Scott is not a real person, Bobby. I want to make sure you know that. Uh, but still, I'd be into it. Um, at Half Mutt, uh, listed off a bunch of them. Uh, he wants Spike Lee on the Knicks. He wants Reggie Miller on the Pacers. He wants Paul Rudd on on the Royals. Uh, but I think my favorite is he wants Mina to be part owner of the Seahawks. And I want that for her, too. <laughs> I do. That's in her future at some point. Yeah. It might be a conflict of interest right now, seeing as that's her main beat. Uh, but maybe down the line. Once she takes over Monday Night Football and re- revenu- revolutionizes play-by-play and color, and then she decides to, to step into ownership roles a little later. Uh, Big Sneaky has been canceled by me for saying the celebrity owner would be Mark Cuban buying the Cubs. Now, I got no problem with that, but he said, and moving them to a brand new dome stadium near the lakefront. Get out of here. (laughs) Get out of here. You're not moving the Cubs out of Wrigley. Get out of here. You've been canceled. Although Mark Cuban buying the Cubs, I would definitely be down with. And then uh, Untouchable Kaz, our guy Kaz, wants uh, 50 Cent or Reggie Jackson as the Mets owner. Uh, I like I like anyone joining the Mets and, and giving them a little little extra flavor, um, although their current owner already tweets a little too much. <laughs> so maybe maybe we stay away from that. Um, Courtney, you have one. Uh, I know you're you're a Chicagoan and you're back living here now. So I am. <sighs> Who would I want to see by? Let's say let's say the Blackhawks, because I think that they do need some new ownership. Right. Yes. Like, are we both in agreement yeah. on that? Uh-huh. So we're then we'd like take away our Seattle Kraken. Mm-hmm. fandom yes um who is like a, my favorite Chicagoan I actually think I'd like to see maybe a former Blackhawk mm, like buy I the franchise like, yeah even though if they haven't lived here like I'm not necessarily going like the Bobby Hull route but like no what? no no let's could, could we that. like get like a current ish or like when Jonathan Taves retires yeah, eventually like I would that. love to see that happen 
happen. I would like to see Taves in an ownership role for sure. I could also see like a Michelle and, and Barack Obama situation. I would have a lot of respect for that ownership. I also, uh, Oprah, you know, Oprah stared us wrong with a couple doctors, <laughs> Phil and Oz, but she's, she's great. Otherwise, uh, Oprah, we tried to get in on the, uh, the red stars, uh, still waiting that callback. Um, also common. Common can buy anything. I think it'd be cool for him to Are be involved in anything. Are we going to say that Kanye West should stay away from no, buying yeah, any yeah. sports teams mm, yeah. here? Yeah, we do not need that. We do not need that, in my in my opinion. Uh, he should stay away from a lot of things right now. It's Spain and Vince, Courtney Crowe, and Sarah Spain, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Uh, this Hawks heat game, quite tight through the first half. It's obviously been on while we've been hosting here. But uh, Hunter and Young pacing things for the Hawks so far. And meanwhile, Jimmy Butler, uh, you got eight apiece from Hero and Vincent, but Jimmy Butler really uh, leading the way uh, with 21 for the Heat and a plus 11. Yeah, I didn't think that taking a look at either of these two teams, like the other night, what was the excuse for the Atlanta Hawks? Fatigue because of the time slot Mm -hmm. that they got for the Sunday game after being in the play-in tournament. Like, not an excuse not an excuse really with John Collins and the injury, but it kind of feels like that's playing into it too. And still, um, you know, Trey Young not having any issues shooting the ball tonight, but Bogdanovich Mm -hmm. coming off the bench, that seems to still be an issue. Yeah. Uh, The other game just getting underway here, the T-Wolves up 4-3 on the Grizzlies. Uh, The Timberwolves, listen, if you get Cat showing up like he did in game one Mm -hmm. and then Anthony Edwards doing what he's done – this team becomes very scary and does not look like a play-in-tournament team, especially against a Grizzlies team that we were raving about uh, being able to keep themselves afloat and excel without John Morant for, what was it, 20-plus games. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is a big test for the Grizzlies. A lot of people have been anointing Ja, um, and, and rightfully so for his performance, but I did hear people saying, slow down, let's see him win a playoff series before we're comparing him uh, and I can't even remember who it was now that had a list of Hall of Famers that he reminded them of. Um, I do think you do have to show some playoff success as a team. And they were just so uncharacteristic in that first loss that they had at the hand of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Like, their overwhelming regular season defense, where was that in game one? Like, that has to show up again tonight. Uh, Jaron Jackson has to show up tonight. John Morant has to show up in this game. And, you know, I feel like it was just it was not the Memphis Grizzlies that we had grown used to seeing this season, and everybody now would have, if, if they do end up with another loss tonight, would have the same sort of rhetoric that we had around this team last year coming back into the forefront. Oh, they're too young. They're too inexperienced. They're not ready for this stage. Well, can you not say that to a degree on the other side of it with the Minnesota Timberwolves, who have not, not necessarily like the youth part, but the fact that they haven't been at this stage in a very, very long time. This is the first time any of these guys have been, uh, you know, at this part of the playoffs. Because, I mean, the last playoff series that they had coming out of the 18, 17, 18 season, they got swept by the Rockets, and it didn't matter. And Courtney, to that point, if you look, there's a story up on .com right now. Uh, Bobby Marks, Kevin Pelton, and Mike Schmitz, ESPN NBA insiders, ranked the top 25 under 25 based on future potential. And you look at that list, and man, does it get exciting to think about 
the future of the NBA. Doncic and Tatum, Morant, Trey Young, LaMelo, uh, Cade Cunningham, who's just getting started. Zion Williamson, what does he still have to prove to us? Darius Garland. There's so many players under 25 that could be the future, and uh, we're kind of seeing that mix now of the vets and, and the rookies. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.